0: We are continuing a series of sermons that we call Stewards of Hope. There it is up there. And we thank uh, Kelly Roman folks for doing that great graphic for us. And we're going through uh, what ordinarily called the, the membership vows, but I'm, we're calling them the discipleship vows. Of As people unite with a church, we ask them to be uh, loyal to that particular church, through their, uh, their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, and, and their witness, and we'll conclude the series on Confirmation Sunday when we talk about our our witness to the world as disciples of Jesus Christ in the United Methodist tradition. Uh, but last week we talked about prayer and, and how we uh, steward our hope through our prayers, and we talked about being bold in our praying and, and letting our prayers take us to places that uh, we have never thought of going before. Some of y'all might remember the allusion to, to Star Trek. So if not, tune in uh, and watch online and, and, and thank you online audience for uh, tuning in right now. And remember you also we asked you to set your alarms to pray. Uh, did anyone's alarm go off at 8.56 just a little bit ago? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 there you go. It's interesting at the noon hour, uh, when they go off at 12.02 and I'm still preaching, they'll say, mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 it, we're supposed to be out of here by now. Uh, so, and that happened last week, by the way. People had set their alarms, the choirs—they're grabbing their phones, they, it's really pretty cool. Uh, so, anyways, we, we're encouraging y'all to be bold in your prayers for uh, God to work in and, and through us. So it's grateful to um, be in a church that's praying. And, and today we're going to talk about being a steward of hope through this word presence. And we're going through the book of Acts, or at least the first nine chapters of it, as we um, talk about uh, stewarding uh, hope in and through the way we are disciples of Jesus Christ in the United Methodist tradition. So we started, as interesting enough, we did have a, one verse from chapter one, and, and uh, then we looked at some verses from chapter four. Well, we're backtracking a little bit and gonna look at the first believers here in Acts chapter two, starting with verse 42. Hear now the word of the Lord. They devoted themselves, they meaning the early church, the the first believers, themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed together and had all things in common they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as, all as any had need. And day by days, they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How do we know this Christian stuff is true? How do we know that the claims of Christianity are something that we can really hold as valid, as something that is true to the claims that it makes? How do we know that this stuff we say week after week and read in our scriptures are true? How do we know that? Well, some will say, have yeah, well, turn to the scripture, you read the Bible, and, and there's all sorts of things in there about Jesus and all sorts of things about God and all, all sorts of things that we can hang our hat on as we look at uh, who Jesus is. Just look at the Bible, that's all we need. But there are plenty of folks out there, maybe some within the sound of my voice, either online or here in the room, that's kind of skeptical about the scriptures. There's some things in there that say, well, that kind of, seems kind of hard to be true. You know, that some things in there seem like, well, that... that It's hard to believe. So some people, well, they have a hard time with the scriptures. They have a hard time believing what they they read there in in the Bible. Well, then there are others that say, well, you know, just talk to them about your experience. Talk about the peace that you feel as a Christian. Talk about, you know, the inspiration that that you receive as a Christian. And and some will say, well, that's your experience. That hasn't been my experience, Uh, you know. I don't have that feeling of peace. I, you know, when I pray, I don't feel those things. How do I know what you're saying is valid for everybody? And it's just not something that's in your own heart. So how can we make a claim that the claims of Christianity, the beliefs about Jesus and, and who we say Jesus is indeed is true? Well, remember... Um, I'm an odd guy. I majored in two different things in college. I majored in math, which I don't know why I did, but I ended up doing that. But I also majored in history. And so history is something that I turn to. And we've got to look at the history of the early church and the first believers, seeing that in a 300-year time span, these wayward fishermen, these, these peasants, these people who oftentimes are slaves, changed the entire course of an empire. We heard just a few weeks ago that those first disciples, those, the original 12, all 12 except one, John, met a horrible death, a horrible death because they refused to back down in their beliefs in Jesus. They proclaimed Jesus their whole lives. And, and as you heard in that wonderful reproduction of the Last Supper, we heard how awful many of those men died. But some will say, well, that, that may be just something the church made up. You know, that's just legend. That's, you know, just expanding tales. Do we, do we see anything that really validates, validates Christianity beyond what the church says? Yeah. Let's look at some things that people who are opposed to Christianity said that kind of Makes the claims seem true. There's a guy named Lucian of Samosata. He was a satirist and a a philosopher uh, from the late second century in Greece. And Lucian said this about Christians. They said, he said, they fear not death because the one who they follow was crucified. They despise earthly goods, holding everything in common. They share with each other as they are brothers. This is a guy that posed Christianity. This is a guy that wrote against Christianity. And this is what he's saying about the Christians. A little earlier in the second century, a guy named Pliny the Younger, who was the the leader in the province of Asia Minor, which is our modern-day Turkey, said this about Christians. He he said this. He said, they commit no crime except a strange superstition about their leader being raised from the dead. They've taken vows to each other that they will neither steal nor commit fraud, or adultery. And as they gather together, they sing hymns of praise to this Christ, and they eat meals together." Hmm. Kind of sounds a little bit like what I just read to you over a century and a half later. These early Christians were practicing the things that we read about in the book of Acts and they were being criticized by those who were opposed adamantly to Christianity because it was a religion of fools and it was a religion of slaves and the lower class. Wow. And as we look at... At the history of the Roman Empire, we see in a mere 300 years, people who are fishermen, people who are the, uh, the working class, the people who were the slaves, changed the empire. How did they do that? As they faced persecution and death, they lived a lives, as Timothy Keller, a guy who I listen to and read some, said of radical unselfishness. Things that are the norm today were not the norm in the Roman Empire. What they did stood out and so that people became attracted to the notion of living a life that was like Jesus. A life that was radically unselfish. Things that we hold as norm today like universal human rights, were brought forth by these early believers. Starting of orphanages and hospitals started with the Christian faith. A new energy of caring for the poor came through this great movement of Jesus Christ. Things that we see and and feel today that are just a part of our society, the part of our way of thinking, we're not there in the first century. Why? Because these early believers caught something that changed their lives and thus changed the world. And that gives validity to the claims that we make about Jesus. Living a radically unselfish life is the greatest thing to prove that Jesus Christ is real. You can't argue with it. And so as we talk about stewarding the gift of presence, we see how those, those first believers there in Jerusalem live radically in selfish lives. And the key word there is that first word that, that we read there in, in verse 42, the believers devoted themselves, devoted themselves. Now, when you, we think about devotion, some of us are going to think about that old Olivia Newton-John song from Greece, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. I mean, some, some of y'all are, are, are thinking about that song maybe even right now because we don't use the word devote a lot anymore, do we? But "devoted," as you look at it in the original language, it's a long old word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, so I, at one time I may have had to learn to do that. But it, it means giving oneself utterly and in one accord to somebody else. There's something else. There's that word accord again. Remember we talked about that last week. The, you know, the car the disciples drove. Okay, you look, at the, look at the video. Uh, but they were all there together. They were all devoted. If you look in, in the Webster's Dictionary, devote means to give oneself to somebody or to something else. Here are these disciples giving of themselves radically unselfishly to these things that the writer of Acts, Luke, talks about. They, first of all, gave themselves to the disciples' teaching. They devoted themselves radically and selfishly to the disciples' teaching. See, here they are, the disciples, teaching these first converts about who Jesus is. And they are saying things. You know, John was there in the group, and we read later on in John's gospel that that was written somewhat later. But John is already starting to talk about this is... The word that's made flesh, this is the God who made everything coming to life to be here amongst us. As the Apostle Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the first of all things. All things are made through him, by him, and for him. They're hearing all this great and broad stuff about Jesus. But then the teachings also included these hard things as they look back at what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. If you uh, go out into the world, you you give your second coat to somebody else who has none. You do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You're radically unselfish with who you are in the world. And if you do that, you have nothing to worry about. Such teachings were radical in that day. Living for others. Living so that other people would know about Jesus. Jesus. And we've got to ask ourselves today, are we radically devoted to the teachings of Jesus and the disciples' teaching? Do we show that by the way we spend our time, even here on Sundays? I mean, y'all are here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in online. But my mere 20 minutes, and some of y'all saying yes, uh, we wish it was just 20 minutes. But yes, in in my mere 20 minutes with you, I I will... uh, give you some words that I hope are useful for you and help you walk a Christian journey and, and live like Jesus. But we have to have more than that. So I hope that if you aren't a part of a Sunday school class that you'll consider being a part of one. We got some great classes out. meet just after this service uh, down on the education wing or, or for our younger people up on the youth wing. We, we have some great classes. And if you've tried out all the classes and you haven't found one yet, help us to talk about that. We can start a new one. So that you're devoting yourselves to the teaching of Jesus. We have wonderful small groups and community groups. We have Bible studies. We, have, we just finished our, our course of disciple Bible study. It's a way to dig into the teachings of Jesus as we look at the written word. Are you radically unselfish and learning about Jesus and how to live like him? Because as we do so, we are formed into who... He is radically unselfish in being devoted to the teachings of Jesus. Are you? Let us help you grow in your discipleship. And the next thing they said that they're, they're devoted to, to the breaking of bread together. Isn't that interesting? Breaking a break. You know, we methods like that. We like to eat, right? And so, you know, we can be really devoted to that. And what we believe is how they did this is that they would imitate a communion when they would gather together. They would start out their gathering by breaking bread remembering that Christ broke his body for them. And as we see in 2 Corinthians, they would eat dinner together. The, some people are being chided because they kept going to the, to the uh, front of the line and eating all the, all the good food before anyone else could get to it or they'd elbow the way to get seconds before someone got first. We, we, we know folks like that. and Paul's chiding folks like that. But okay, so they started breaking bread. Remembering that Christ is present with them as they broke the bread. They'd eat dinner and then they would say, after supper, he took the cup. And they would pass the cup around and share in remembrance that Christ spilled blood because you see, every time we gather with believers, it's a holy time when we eat together. It's a time where we recall the goodness of God and it's a time that we remember as we are sharing the meal together with, that Jesus is here with us. And so maybe, maybe something we think about doing is that when we share a meal together as a church, whether it's cooking out gourmet food like hot dogs or, or we're having the, the Thursday night dinner, we, we have set out a chalice and a loaf reminding us that, well, we are here breaking bread with Jesus. And it's interesting that these folks that were eating together, well, they're different. They're different. We, we read that uh, there were some that were Greek-speaking. There's some that were Jewish-speaking. There's some from all over the known world at the time eating together. Folks that went not eat together. And later on, there were Jews sitting at the table and Gentiles sitting at the table. There was black folks sitting at the table and some European-looking folks sitting at the table. All gathered there together. And Jesus reminds us that to be radically unselfish in our eating is to invite others who we normally wouldn't dine with to share the meal with us. Particularly people that would never invite us back, meaning people that are poor, people that are broken, people that are folks that maybe don't look like us. And as we, as a church, consider moving forward with our feeding ministry and things are brewing that you're going to hear about, I hope, here soon, how are we going to be radically unselfish with the use of our facilities and our resources, so that people that may not have got a meal that day will show up here. People different than us, you see. Because you gotta ask ourselves, when we eat, is it just about us? Are we, including others within our fellowship, not only actually breaking food, but we're there offering our hearts to someone else? As we gather together in fellowship and breaking of bread. There's an, a legend. You may have heard it. You may have heard this legend that in the afterlife, that your elbows remain locked. They don't work. In the afterlife, you, you, your arms just stay outstretched like that. And so uh, the description is, of dinner in hell is this, is that here these folks come to the table and there's this scrumptious food that is set out before them. And, and there, there's this gourmet dinner there, but they, they're frustrated, you see, because they, they, they can't get to the food at all. And, and they are there uh, uh, frustrated and angry and upset and they, they leave the table starving and howling in rage because the food is there so plenteously so deliciously and they can't touch it. Similar scene is in the kingdom of heaven. There's a scrumptious banquet set before the people. Uh, there is plenty of food there for everyone to eat, but instead of howls of anger and anguish, there's laughter and there's joy. There's people uh, talking with one another. And you have to ask yourselves, what's the difference in the scene? The food's the same. The people's physical condition's the same. What's the difference? You see, in hell, people are so concerned about getting the food themselves and being selfish and feeding themselves that they, they don't even think about feeding somebody else in the kingdom of heaven. They are reaching across, feeding one another because they have learned the gift that this food isn't for me alone, it's for others. And they share. Are we practicing radical, radical unselfishness as we gather together and break bread, including others who we'd normally not invite? That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, where we feed one another in the name of Jesus. Well, they said they... uh, were unselfish in devoting themselves, giving themselves the disciples' teaching and in breaking of bread, and they were devoted to saying prayers for one another. We talked a lot about prayer last week, and as we uh, analyzed the sermons, and we, you know, we all said, you know, gosh, we can do a series of sermons on prayer. Because I mean, there is, prayer is so deep and so broad. I mean, we can talk for a long, long time about prayer. But here's something that we ought to consider in prayer. Is, Praying for others, intercessory prayer. When someone is brought into membership in the church or as I say, into serving discipleship into this church, we, we talk about, well, you're gonna be asked to pray and what does that mean for the church? You're praying for this congregation that we are led by Christ, that the, the leaders that they're guided and directed by Jesus but for the pastors that you know, we uh, are led by the Lord and, and then you're praying for your fellow members and as you see uh, and hear about the needs of others in the church, you're praying for them, lifting them up because they devoted themselves radically and selfishly to prayer We've got to ask ourselves, As what does our prayer life look like? It's about a mirror on ourselves and on those close to us. And yeah, we should pray for those things. Don't get me wrong. But what about each other? What about the members that you sit in the pews with and go to Sunday school with or share a small group with? Are you praying for them Are you praying for us? Trust me, this poor sinner needs it. And it's amazing what happens when we pray for others. The mystic prophet and leader of the civil rights movement, a guy named Howard Thurman, whose writings and way of thought was a great influence and Dr. Martin Luther King said this about prayer. He said it's amazing when we pray for other people, how God's spirit works within our hearts to show us how we can be an answer to that prayer. He said, it's amazing sometimes as you're praying for others, you feel this urge to make the visit, write the card, make the call. You been there? It's been amazing how many times I've picked up the phone and called somebody that was placed on my heart as I've lifted them up in prayer and someone will say, how'd you know? How'd you know? Well, I didn't, but God did. Are we unselfish, radically unselfish in our prayers for the church and for one another? And it says here that they they gathered in fellowship with each other. Now, we we love that word fellowship, don't we? That means that we're going to sit down and eat, right? We we are going to, you know, uh, fry up the gospel bird or we're going to cook some burgers or we're going to, you know, someone's going to make some great homemade pies. I mean, we love fellowshipping. Well, what do they mean there? They meant that they gathered together to encourage one another. In fact, if you get our text message, that's what it's about today, encourage somebody else. It's amazing how you'll get encouraged by it. Well, all we're doing is fulfilling what the Apostle Paul said in Thessalonians, encourage one another as you already are doing. It says in Ephesians, encourage one another, build each other up and that's, what we ought to be doing as a church. We hear sometimes of people getting fights and arguing and, and talking and gossiping in church, that the church should be the last place for that. We should be a household of encouragement for each other, building one another up, lifting up one another, enabling each other to do this hard work of radical and selfishness. Because it's hard to live the Christian life and we all know that life can be hard and difficult and we can be beaten down by what goes on in the world around us. This should be the place of encouragement. African American preacher was asked one time, said, why do your all church services go so long? Some of y'all might be asking, why do these, okay. Uh, why, why do the church service go so long and the preacher, oh, wise fellow said this, well, you know, my people, they have a hard life. They're told by society and by some people around them that they're low class or no class or no good. They're, you know, they're, a lot of them are the working poor. And so I've got to bring them in here each week and unpeel those layers of the falsehood that the world is telling about themselves and remind them, and it takes some time, that they are royalty that they're children of God, that God has created them beautifully and wonderfully. And so it takes some time to clean them up and send them out to live as the beautiful children of God that they are. Encourage one another. Turn to somebody next to you, nearby to you. If you're sitting by yourself, you shout it out and say to them, you're royalty. You're a beautiful child of God. Take a moment just to do that. Say that right now. You're royalty. royalty. You're a beautiful child of God. Isn't that encouraging? You know, this is a place we say stuff like that to one another. To remind each other. Because we are a royal priesthood. We follow the one who's a king of kings and Lord of lords. And if we do that, we are to live like he did. For as it says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself of everything. We read how in John's gospel, he knelt down before the disciples' feet. And what did he do? He didn't paint their toenails. He washed their feet. That's a humble service as well. He washed their feet. and And you all... He lived a life of radical unselfishness. and we who are royalty like he is are to live that way too. We got some folks gonna join the church at, uh, at Crossroads, uh, the Kelly family, and Stephanie was talking to uh, Vern and Mia about one of the things that was so appealing to this church is this, she said, y'all hand out, she called them community bags, but they're called grace bags. Y'all got some of those? They're bags that y'all made up a month or two ago filled with food that can, that can have someone have nourishment for a day. And she said, that touched my heart so much and I had one in my car and I was driving by a, a particular establishment and there was someone outside holding up signs saying, please help. And she said, because I'm a part of a church that does unselfish things like make grace bags, I drove over to her, and I said, here, this is some food that will last you for today. And Stephanie said, it was like a woman had received a bag of gold. She grabbed it and hugged it and saw the tag that's on it said, God loves you. She began to weep. And Stephanie said this, I want to be a part of a church that does things like that. Y'all, we are a church that does many things like that, living a life of radical unselfishness. And as we move into the future, we have to ask ourselves, uh, how are we being called to be radically unselfish with the gift that is behind us on the trail? How are we called to be radically unselfish with a church that's a uh, a school that's a stone throws from us whose assistant principal is sitting in the back pew? How are we to call to be radically unselfish with the gift of who we are in the world? How? Because, you see, as we live lives individually and as a congregation of radical unselfishness, people are going to say, maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe there is something to the truth of who he is. May that be so, because this church and you all are here in this place. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.